Hi, I'm Caroline Yoder. And I'm Cameron Hilt. Welcome to A Virtual View, where we talk about healthcare, telehealth, and everything in between. Today, we'll be talking with Micah Casahoon, who is the data coordinator for the Indiana Rural Health Association. All right. Thanks for having me, everybody. Of course. We're glad you're here. Yeah. And may may I say, Caroline, you have an incredible podcast voice. It's just such a, it's really great. It sounds so professional and it's amazing. I'm surprised you're not doing any other work for it any other entities and stuff like that. It sounds really, really cool. <laughs> Thank you. It's really clean, yeah. Maybe I'll start freelancing podcasting. <clears throat> I think you should. <laughs> I think you should. There's a reason why I wanted Caroline to continue to do the introduction. I know, it was really so. impressive. I was like, wow, this is so cool. Uh, I'm, excited, I'm excited to be here. I, like, I love the format. Yeah, thanks, Micah. Yeah, we're excited to have you here and Looking forward just to be able to introduce you to our listeners and talk a little bit more about what you do at IRHA, as well as some of the work that you've been involved with over the past couple years. For our listeners who maybe are listening to you for the first time, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you for introducing me. I am a data coordinator on the NROC and Crossroads grant. So for NROC, that would be the uh, Indiana Rural Opioid Consortium. And then Crossroads focuses on our telehealth behavioral health side of things. So there are two separate grants that I'm on, but at the same time, I'm split between those equally throughout the weeks when I'm working and everything. So I get to apply my understandings of substance use disorders, which is what I've currently been researching, studying, and just working on for the past two and a half years. The experience that you get with also being part of NROC is really helpful when we're looking at some of the different data of the patients that are seen through the Crossroads program. Just to have some of that substance use background for a telebehavioral health program is is really big. So Micah, tell us a little bit about what were some of the experiences that you had that kind of shaped your interest in healthcare? So in healthcare to begin with, first of all, I can go the easy route and say, when I was given the job, they kind of just was thrown into a post and you're like, hey, learn everything you can about substance use disorders. And I was like, sure, why not? I'm not gonna say no. <laughs> but besides that point, so I grew up in a very healthcare kind of focused family. My mom is a nurse. She also got her master's in nursing. So it's not just practice, she also started teaching. And now she works for Blue Cross, uh, Blue, Cross Blue Shield as a consultant in Chicago. And just kind of growing up, I watched her like with all her nursing books, just kind of studying and everything like that. And she was so focused on, you know, making sure she had everything established all while wait for raising three, three kids. And my dad constantly like behind her, like pushing, he's like, you need to do more. Let's go continue get like get the next degree. Let's, let's complete this, which was really fun to watch. And my dad just being really, really supportive through that whole process. She would come home from work and she would just tell me everything about the people that she was working with, certain tragedies that she would witness here and there. So that was my first introduction to healthcare from a straight like treatment point of view. And then my dad's side, he is currently the Evangelical Lutheran uh, Church in America's area director for the whole continent of Africa. So his point of view was not necessarily treatment, but prevention and providing like self-preservation mechanics for different communities from different countries on the continent. And so I got to witness him do writing for different public health interventions, 
the construction of community spaces that would eventually transform into market areas and market squares that would push economic development forward. And so he was constantly writing proposals. And I got an internship with them there one time, and I was evaluating their spreadsheet of what they apply for in grants and the proposals that were going for. And I looked at like my dad's like just understand and it wasn't they weren't they don't get a lot but when my when I looked at where my I knew all the the countries that my dad was working with and so when I totaled everything up and did the math myself he was close to pulling like over 50% of grant funds were going towards that I want to say and just for this single spreadsheet alone this didn't encompass the entire year but just for this section it was like 2.37 million that he was pulling in and grant funds just to distribute amongst the countries here and there for these projects that they had going on. So he focused a lot on like justice and I forget the name of the other specific name that they had for it. It was a specific theme that went with it, but I just knew like he was constantly meeting with leaders on the field, meeting with generals, other bishops, politicians of those communities and some just of the countries of other ministers of the, st- of the state. So I got to see the treatment side and like the boots on the ground, hardcore, like public health initiatives going in. So my understanding of health was pretty decently balanced while also having more of a strengthened global perspective, but I hadn't understood the complete rural perspective yet, but I knew that there was something there. So that was kind of how I got into the health aspect. Quick point on top of that, specifically with substance use disorder, I remember in high school, I was on the volleyball team with my school in Wheaton Warrenville South High School in Wheaton, Illinois. And my teammate actually overdosed from heroin and died. That's when I really learned about opioids and learned that it was an issue. He was a really sweet guy, but to hear him pass away, like we all lost it. And we had no, like we couldn't believe that two years before that. The star quarterback for our team, he overdosed as well on heroin. So in my community, which was very affluent, there was just all these kids that were just overdosing and dying from this issue in in Wheaton, Illinois, which is very suburban, very protected. At one point, I think Wheaton, Illinois was ranked the sixth safest place in the United States to raise a family. But that was some years ago. It still is really, really safe and has all the amenities you could ask for. But the access with the amount of funds that one could possess with the amount of pure substance that you could get, that made it really difficult on the youth. And it became an issue that people really couldn't turn a blind eye to. That's really interesting. And that's part of the reason why we have people on our show is to be able to hear people's backgrounds and what kind of sparked their interest in healthcare, the specific issues that they're kind of focused on, either personally or professionally. And yeah, it's amazing to hear, especially with your parents, you had a very balanced perspective of a parent who was providing direct clinical care to patients, Mm -hmm. as well as a parent that was looking at some more of those preventative public health approaches on a very large scale. Right. So it's cool to have the perspective from both of your parents with that and to have that kind of shape your interest in healthcare. You received your master's in public health, and so focusing on the public health portion. And it's really powerful when you have some personal stories that connect you with what you're doing. And so to lose a teammate as well as other people that you grew up with 
yeah just based off of opioids i mean it's it's huge to be able to draw upon some of that personal experience to really help give meaning to your work as well as passion for the issue that you're addressing so yeah it's horrible to say and to really know how prevalent the opioid crisis is and it's it's interesting that we have both the pandemic and the opioid crisis that are still happening concurrently although it gets overshadowed a little bit by covid yeah um, naturally <laughs> the opioid epidemic is still alive and well and still definitely hitting a lot of our communities really hard kind of with that what are some of the big struggles when it comes to substance use disorders in indiana I think before going, you know, into the clinical side and like the actual you know, science behind it, you have to consider the, the human aspect of it and that you don't get to use the logic, oh, that's not for me, or that doesn't touch my circle, or because of the money I have, whether you're saying this out loud or this is completely subversive uh, because you don't have to think about it. But just have it, you know, living a life that is completely ignorant of the fact of the idea like, oh, this could never happen to me or my kids would never touch that. That's the biggest lie you could ever tell to yourself. And I think that does a disservice to our loved ones and our community because we all want to look at the people around us as angels who would never do any wrong. But I remember my mom, like she came home from a parent teacher conference that they did like just for all the parents. There was like hundreds of parents there. And they had a student who was like, hey, everyone, thank you for coming to the parent-teacher conference. I'm also a student. And they were saying how we're happy that you're here and everything, but we also want to talk about the reality of like drug abuse and different things like that. Please know that we love you as parents and that we also want to have a good time and like enjoy our lives. And we want to be, just we want to be active in society, blah, 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 the usual. But at the same time, it's like, but remember, like, we're also kids. We're high schoolers students. We, we lie. It's what we do. So don't take our every word and don't believe us at face value all the time. And that like that crushed my like the heart of my mom, but she understood it. And she's like, I get that. I understand that. And it makes sense. But nobody wants to view their child as a liar or anything like that because it hurts too much. Also, I'm not a parent, so I don't have the right to make the judgment saying, like, how could you think of your child as such this angel? No, I'll never say that until I have my own kids. But I do understand the pain of thinking that way against one's child. But the reality of it is that, especially for youth, they'll lie to you to get to maintain that peer status amongst the groups of people. But just the idea that this doesn't happen in my family, we don't do drugs. Drugs is for, I'm going to put this in quotes, street people or different things like that. You're opening yourself to being a target of that thing. Because you choose like, oh, that's not going to happen to me. I mean, come on. Like, we have to be a little bit realistic because life tends to swing really hard and they don't follow the normal rules of a boxing match. Like, it's going to take the low blow if necessary. So coming at it from the perspective like, hey, things can happen. And I think I need to take things open-handed. And this could affect my community. This could affect my loved ones. And that is a very real piece that I've kind of seen to piggyback off of that. Do not carry judgment towards those who are walking through that journey and who are experiencing it in the real. Because as soon as you other that category of individuals who are using substance use disorder, opioid disorder, what I have learned is judgment prepares you and gives you 
um, a license to kill that person already in your heart. As soon as you judge that individual, you have made it very, very difficult for yourself to see them as a human in your own eyes. And they might as well just be dead in your own heart because you've judged them. You've cast it as you're, you're the executioner. You're the law. You've done it yourself. So in doing so, it freezes you up from being a part of anything that helps that person later on. So because you don't like those people, and I put that in quotes, who are maybe drug abusers or whatever language you want to use, because language is very important. We can get to that a little bit later. But if all of you say to them, and I put this in quotes, oh, they're the, just these useless drug abusers. Where were their parents running around? Like, how, how dare they? This, that. If that's your attitude, then that means, first off, you've judged them. That means you've already killed them in your heart because you're not going to do anything to help and better that individual or the community or the environment that they're in. Second, I'm pretty sure you're not going to be at those meetings or town hall meetings where like, hey, let's build a better environment. Let's build a wellness center. Let us establish treatment options. Let's get a prevention clinic going. Different things like that. You're not going to be part of the conversation. So by judgment alone, you've already taken yourself out of the equation to be part of building a society where individuals can rebuild and continually walk through that journey and reconnect with loved ones. The judgment just kills. It really does. And that goes for anything. If you want to apply that to anything, that's just how judgment works. It's really powerful. You know, if the only thing that those individuals can receive from others is blame and shame, then how do we expect them ultimately to get sober and to improve their quality of life? If all the individuals around them are kind of rooting against them, it's it's really hard to see impact yeah. long term with that. I so agree. It's really powerful and to really come to grips with that and a personal example that I have is, so I lived in a mixed income neighborhood and one of the big topics, I'm sure many people are familiar with Nextdoor and the debates yes. that go on uh-huh. <laughs> Nextdoor, uh, but there was a lot of conversation on Nextdoor about this house that was specifically built for individuals who were suffering from substance use disorders that are in recovery, but for them to be able to live in a group communal setting together. Mm -hmm. And one, this house has existed for a while, but I guess someone new had recently moved in there and didn't know that that house was for that purpose. And so they were like, how do I actually get these people out? Like, I don't want to live next to a house that has all of these people that are substance abusers, even though they're recovering substance abusers. And, you know, if that's some of the attitude of individuals that either are buying homes or, like you said, they're at town hall meetings and they don't want to support some of these like group housing or different options for individuals who struggle with substance use, because of that stigma that exists, it's it's yeah. really hard to be able to actually have good results and, you know, see those people actually get better if they don't have that support from the community and the people around them. I think also that has to be the problem. Just where we live in general, as society gets bigger, as infrastructure gets bigger, as the system gets bigger, people like to make their communities smaller. So as everything just increases, people just kind of decrease and push off. This is a natural safety piece that we are. We want to be in that comfort zone. And if if you put drugs in the same same conversation as 
comfort and building a family as in and suburbia, it doesn't mix well, especially with individuals who has an established family line that just doesn't struggle with that. Or they just, the more you have, the more you feel like you're willing to lose and the more you're unwilling to use those resources to, you know, help preserve your community because your community is your immediate family. I can, I can understand why, but there's still a human element that's missing and that's the community part. Yeah. And especially with that, what are some of the unique challenges of individuals who are uh, struggling with substance use disorders when they live in rural communities? So right off the bat, I would say immediate access. That's how I look at it. I look at immediate access as such as an iPhone. So I had a really old phone for a while that was a, it was still considered a smartphone, but it was Android, but it was a really, really low powered Android. The Galaxy A6, don't ever buy it. They probably don't even offer it anymore. It's so bad. The problem is that people would sometimes text me on that phone and I wouldn't really necessarily respond. Or if I was asked to like look up something, I didn't even want to touch it because the operating system was just so poor that it would just take too too much time to load. It would take too much effort. Just even trying to send a message took way longer than it should be. And it probably may not be that long. It probably takes an extra 30 seconds. But in our high-speed world, that's, that's too much. It's way too much. So the point of the metaphor is that if, if the access isn't quick, accessible, and just available right there off the bat, people are not really going to hunt out this type of aid, especially if they have to jump through hoops or barriers or different things like that, because the return on your investment is going to be pretty low. That's kind of what I've just been seeing, like immediate access distance from a, whether it be a critical access hospital, a site that even offers telebehavioral health of any level or any type, or even just a hospital just in general. That when I, and then when I'm saying access, I'm not just saying internet access, I'm also saying physical distance as well. And then if we look away from just physical distance, then we can look at like fiber optics, like all that type of high-tech advancement that may not be there. It may be in some rural areas that are adapting and uh, changing, but in other areas that could be difficult to come by, especially if the community is not necessarily trying to allocate a certain amount of their budget to upgrade that amongst their entire rural community. So we have to consider those real-world implications as well, but that immediate access, and if it has hoops to jump through and the hoops are set on fire, I guarantee that people are just not going to bite even though they want it and that's the thing people who are going through that journey they want to make changes they want to fulfill the personal destiny that they want they have dreams they have aspirations and they have goals and so it's not like they want that either they, they want to make the changes they want to make the progress and they want to be on the journey it's just as a community have we built our infrastructure in a way to accommodate right yeah that's interesting too. You brought up telebehavioral health and lots of different avenues, and especially with the pandemic, the utilization of telehealth to treat mental health conditions has been a huge benefit during the pandemic to have those delivery options. And especially with some of the changes that CMS has made that now makes billing for those services outside of a public health emergency more accessible. 
for different providers, that's great news as far as the longevity of it. <laughs> but I'm curious, as we've seen telebehavioral health continue to be utilized and be utilized a lot more during this pandemic, why do you feel like that particular service is beneficial for an individual who's um, suffering with substance use disorders? So I think behavioral health naturally is going to coincide with uh, substance use disorders and opioid use disorders. There's always going to be a reason that someone may be using or something like that. People don't just take just to take. There's, there can be, there's associated comorbidities that are really, really important to analyze. And so I think, especially with behavioral health, that gives us insight and also can function as kind of a marker to, to you know, regulate whether this individual is at risk um, for substance use disorder or vice versa. It could be they're use, if you figure out first that they're, have, they're going through substance use disorder, then you can maybe analyze, okay, are we looking at anxiety? Are we looking at bipolar disorder? Are we looking at any adverse reactions related to PTSD? What's going on? So I think they work really well in tandem to help address whether it be at-risk youth or just any at-risk population in that regard. So they, it works really well as kind of like this double-edged sword to see like what's on the other side, what's, what's the damage being dealt from this perspective. So that's why it's also really quick. We can't really necessarily just judge based on when someone is on the journey with substance use disorder because you don't know if they have anxiety. You don't know if they have bipolar disorder. You don't know if they've struggled with mental abuse, verbal abuse, sexual abuse. You don't know, and you don't get to cast that judgment. You don't get to cast that line. That's not for you to do because it's not that simple. It's not that simple anymore, and it never was. I think it's because behavioral health is now a part of the equation, we're now starting to see the other piece that's been missing. Because for so long, drug abuse is just drug abuse. They're using because they're drug abusers and they like it. No, absolutely not. There is an emotional, mental component, and we have to address it, and we have to analyze it, research it, and then produce the data. We've had the opportunity with the Crossroads Partnership for Telehealth to look at what some of the utilization for our telebehavioral health programs have looked like. And to your point, we see the patients that are going in for substance use disorder often have other things that are going on. So the most common being, as far as a comorbidity goes, being depression, anxiety, but being able to receive consistent quality behavioral health care, especially for those who are living in rural communities that maybe don't have access to those (laughs) in-person opportunities through telebehavioral health. Yeah. But having that holistic care is is really important because often it's not just the drug use, as you said, there's, there's mm-hmm. other things to work through and being able to have access to a, a therapist that can help you work through those things is really influential and helpful when it comes to actually getting to the point for uh, recovery. And I think this is also reflective of what we've been taught when we were, again, when we were going after drugs, like in the eighties, it was all about, we just go after the drugs. We go after the people using the drugs. You were so focused on the substance you were you missed the person completely. 
you, you bypassed the person who just went for the substance. And if you hurt the person in pursuit of the substance, that's okay. At least we got the substance. And so just that D word, drug, 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 drug. There's just so much power behind it. And it's easier to go after something that doesn't have a face because it's, de- it's been dehumanized. There's no human part of it. So if you can label drug on top of a person, you dehumanize them, judge them, then you kill them, you don't feel as bad because you made your righteous argument. And because you made your righteous argument, you have now potentially damned that person specifically in meaning you haven't given them the chance. And that's why that language is so important because we focused on the word drug for so long, we didn't focus on behavioral health to be a component to evaluate, okay, this is the why. Like the drug was the what, but the behavioral health is the why. And that's what we need to focus on. We always focus on our why. When you build a business, you focus on why. Why are you building this business? When you pick a career, you focus on the why are you doing this career? The why is the most important thing that pushes you forward to complete. It's interesting to see how the approaches for tackling substance use disorder has changed over the years and how far it has come to where now we have this more holistic focus of how can we really get these individuals connected to the care that they need. And kind of with that, especially with telebehavioral health, we have seen a lot of positive feedback from it, but you have a unique perspective of where you get to actually see some of the data of a telebehavioral health program. So what place do you feel that data storytelling has in helping improve the sustainability of telebehavioral health programs? Okay, so I, lo- I love talking about this, and this has been my own personal understanding of data and storytelling. First off, before I ever was really interested in data, because it's really boring, it's bland, it's kind of that random term that's thrown around in, in sci-fi movies to make things sound cool, and we love hearing it. It's like, oh, the, you know, the particle reserves are missing X amounts of data. We need to assemble it so that we can retract, blah, 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 blah. As soon as you throw in data, people are like, ooh, we're talking about data. Now that is a nice word. Like the word, when data is thrown into something like that, it makes your sci-fi program incredible by, by a huge margin. That's so but true. It is, it is. I, we, I mean, come on, Star Trek named a whole character after just data. Like, are you joking? <laughs> come on. <laughs> His name is supposed to be about data. Like, I am the human embodiment of a unit of information or technically a plural for you talking about data, but you get the point. And so, but that's the thing that made it look cool. But then when you do like the real behind the, like behind the veil type analysis of what data is, it's so boring. It's so bland. It's, it's like staring at a wall. Like, why do you want to do this? Why do you want to invest a career into this? So here's the thing. This is how I look at data and this is how I make it digestible again especially for myself. You have to come from the perspective that first off, people um, have an innate love and respect for storytelling. It's, and it's, I think it personally is, it is subconscious because we just do it without, we do it without thinking. That's why we have so many subscriptions to a multitude of streaming services, even non-fictional documentaries 
tailor their discoveries and programs to embody a full-on story to captivate and hold an audience's attention. So that, that's how I prove that we love storytelling, just by nonsensical documentaries that actually sound riveting from that perspective, which I would never watch. Yet I sometimes find myself doing because they, got, they get David Attenborough talking about something. I'm like, wow, David, you had me. Hello. Like, it's amazing. So then if you keep jumping on top of that, we're also really, really visual, hyper-visual, actually. And we want to be at the center of all the information so that we can rationalize it. So why wouldn't we do the same for data? In its raw form, data is boring and drab, as I talked about. It's also impossible to work with. And it's also associated with all that is melancholy, if anything. So why not tell a story with it? Why not paint a picture with it? We should make like a captivating piece of art that actually leverages like the specifics of, of a human attention span. That's what we have to do with data. So a solid real world application with presenting data in a way that is not only just a story, but it, treating it as an art form and an art piece. You could say, for example, present a data story like this to a CEO to make a case for the different types of ICD-10 codes that are exploding all over the scene because a new development took place in your county, which to a certain extent that actually happened with one of our data snapshots that we created for one of our health partners or specifically our hospital partners. So by creating these set pieces that are digestible, they make sense, they're to the point and to a certain extent granular, these can be prepackaged and just sent over to a boss, a higher up, or someone that you just need to get a point across to. And you give it to them, you add color to it, you talk to that person as an equal, and you don't make them feel bad because you're talking about data, and they want to know more. They want to see, they say, oh, I see a story, I see something that's going on. You have to have a thesis in the way you bring it forward, or else it just doesn't work. And so in doing so, you get to display important trends that were originally dismissed or that just flew under the radar. And so that's why I think when you tell a story with data and you do it purposefully and you do it and you treat it with respect instead of being, instead of rolling your eyes, well, let's make it, let's make it pretty. In the dark ages, people just ate, ate just crusty old bread and just whatever was rotting at the bottom of the barrel. And they presented as like, Hey, you don't get to complain. This is what we eat. Well, over time, gourmet chefs came through and they started making beautiful art pieces that not only looked great, but they tasted great. They captivated you and people just love them. And that's why we put seasoning on our food now, everybody. Like that's why we, that's why we do. We, we make it taste better. We make it digestible. We, we make us want to eat it. So that's why you have to tell a story with data to captivate your audience. If you don't and say, you, for example, you put up just all these black words on a blank piece of canvas like on a powerpoint presentation and you and you pump it full of just there's no white space all you can see is words everywhere people are going to be like i'm not going to read that i'm not interested well then what you got to do is make really nice pie charts make really nice graphs add color to it stimulate the senses because we're not just trying to look with our eyes we're trying to feel with our hearts and we're trying to identify so our goal is to be the david attenborough of presenting boring information and making people be like, what? I want to study this. I want to enjoy this. I want to understand this. And I also want to put my stake into it. That's my understanding of data storytelling. Sell it to me. 
but sell it to me in a way that I don't want to buy it. I want to feel it. I mean, especially because we work in the healthcare field. If you are talking about services that impact real people, real people's lives, their health and wellness long-term, like you have to have data to back it up. Well, hopefully. I'll say this. If you just brought data to the table, like good on you. Like I'm not asking everyone to be a professional perfect percent of the time at least you brought your data to the table for sure and i mean it's i'll give i'll give props there (laughs) but being able to be able to demonstrate with data of why something is having an impact and it really is a art form to take especially for any of our listeners that are familiar with electronic medical records and the amount of different data points that exist within those being able to look at that and actually make something useful out of it is mm-hmm. definitely a skill. It's not 100%. something that is is easy. It takes time. It takes thought. Mm-hmm. And it takes a person really connecting the dots yep. in a way that maybe someone who doesn't have access to that data or doesn't have that particular skill set may not be able to connect the dots in the same way without that person who's sitting down doing the analysis and ultimately telling the story of right. this is what I looked at. This was the data I had. This is what it's telling me. And this is what we should do. So especially with telehealth and as we go through the pandemic and we've had this, the biggest sample size we possibly could ever have <laughs> for telehealth, being able to have individuals who can kind of step into this space and it's like, okay, We've had all these patients that have now done telehealth. Now, what can we say were some of the outcomes with it? Now, I will put in a caveat for within the context of data data storytelling, this is not just uh, numbers. It also includes stories of patients and different things that we would incorporate. So both quantitative and qualitative data would be a, a part of that. I think you also have to, I like how when you talked about stories and also like anecdotes, we also, we can't really, we can't throw qualitative data out of the, like out the window. I, there, I, I love math. I'm just going to say that and no one is going to agree with me and that's fine. Uh, That's cool. And I, and that's just how I roll. So I love when it's quantitative, I'm like, yes, the hard science, the real stuff that you get paid for. Like that's, I mean, that's what, what businesses are founded on. But the thing is, like, qualitative data brings that human element that makes you care about the quantitative data. And that's why I'm really thankful that you mentioned that, because a lot of, I just feel like a lot of just science in general and just in the STEM fields, qualitative data really doesn't have a place. I I understand, especially when you're dealing with, like, hardcore hard sciences. But at the same time, when you're doing research-focused work, when you're dealing with behavioral health, when you're, when you're dealing with specific entities that deal with the transformation of people's lives, qualitative data better be in your back pocket as the first thing that you whip out to a gunfight because you need that to humanize and to show the response to treatment, the response to the research, the response to whatever it may be. As long as it's you're bringing that human component, that just kind of puts, them, that puts a really sharp stamp of approval especially from other individuals who maybe were wary about the research that you're doing or 
or something to that to that end. It brings people to the table. I personally love anecdotes. When I go to different events and we have individuals like, hey, I got an anecdote about this program and what it's been doing, I live for those because that anecdote eventually leads into the quantitative. And so it's like a nice path that gets you there. It makes me care. And so you've already set up your thesis in a way that is like, oh, there's going to be a human element to this. Get me in there. Sign me up because I want to know what did this do? I don't care about the number because in this line of work, it's not about the number. It's about the life. And so you have to focus on that qualitative component. So I'm really, really thankful you said that. Thank you for adding that, Cam. Absolutely. And yeah, hopefully over the next few years, we'll get to see more cases of that and how people are utilizing data storytelling to back up the work that telebehavioral health is doing in the lives of a lot of different individuals. And hopefully we'll be able to see a little bit more from you as well from the Crossroads Partnership for Telehealth and some of the data that you all find. Micah, I really just wanted to thank you for taking the time to come join us today and just to speak with us. This has been very engaging and we just appreciate having you on the show. Thanks again for having me. I want to thank you for listening to A Virtual View. You can find more information about today's episode in the show notes below. If you would like to support our podcast, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Do you have any questions or topics you'd like us to discuss? If so, contact us at info at umtrc.org or through the form found in the show notes. Also, we'd like to give a special thanks to our editor, Tristan Yoder. Finally, a special thanks to the Health Resources and Service Administration, also known as HRSA. Our podcast series, A Virtual View, is sponsored in part by HRSA's Telehealth Resource Center program, which is under HRSA's Office of the Administrator and the Office for the Advancement of Telehealth. The content and conclusions of this podcast are those of Caroline Yoder and Cameron Hilt of the UMTRC and should not be construed as the official policy of or the position of, nor should any endorsements be inferred by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government. Thanks for listening and have a great day.